You may not know the name Stan Lee, but you know his work. He grew up in New York City during the Great Depression and in 1939 began working as an assistant with a company that eventually became known as Marvel Comics. Stan Lee is the co-creative genius behind The Hulk, Iron Man, X-Men, Thor, and most famous and most successful of them all, Spider-Man. What makes Marvel Comics successful is their ability to create a world of wonder, something stunning to marvel at. Marvel Comics has made billions off of wonder, and the stories aren't even real. We're, we're fascinated by them. We're, we're drawn in to those icons of superheroes, uh, their, their imaginary supernatural power. And so we are, to a certain extent, amazed at them. Now, superheroes might not be your thing. You might not be into that. You may never have had the comic books or the lunchboxes. But their power to fascinate and influence culture is indisputable. The Avengers superhero movie, released a little while ago, grossed more than $1.5 billion, with a B, billion dollars globally at the box office, more than the economy of some small countries. Why? Because inside of all of us is a longing to wonder, to be amazed, to be blown away by something. In fact, we were created to marvel, to marvel at God. God is calling you to be awestruck at Jesus and to serve and to love Him. And maybe John 6 is the passage God will use to awaken your wonder at Jesus Christ. Wonder in your heart. My aim in preaching is to lead you to wonder at the power and accomplishment of Jesus Christ, a marveling that ends in steadfast faith so you can experience your greatest joy and pleasure in Him. Now, how has John already created wonder for us? Think of the wonder and amazement John has captured in the first six chapters Wonders the world has never seen outside of the person and work of Jesus Christ. In chapter 2, Jesus turned water into wine. Delicious, fine wine. In chapter 4, Jesus healed the official son with only words. In chapter 5, Jesus gave an invalid of 38 years immediate healing. Then in chapter 6, Jesus not only healed many of the sick people that came to him, but he flexed his power and fed probably 25,000 people with just five loaves and two fish. People were so enthralled by his power and his persona that they wanted to make him king. Do you marvel at Jesus? The aim of John's literature is to recount for you what left him astounded. These few verses in chapter 6 arouse wonder through adventure and danger and rescue In a few verses, John induces us to entrust Jesus with our lives because he is able to rescue us from anything, even the seriousness and the danger of our own sin. The adventure of following Jesus. The adventure of following Jesus. We left off with Jesus withdrawing, and he went up into the mountain to pray. The crowd was dismissed, 
And Jesus had sent his disciples down to the Sea of Galilee. John 6, 16 and 17 say, When evening came, his disciples went down to the sea, got into a boat, and started across the sea to Capernaum. It was now dark, and Jesus had not yet come to them. So they were heading west across the Sea of Galilee, alone in a boat, right after seeing Jesus perform a seismic act of power. What an adventure. Now, an interesting fact In 1986, some archaeologists discovered and excavated a first century fishing boat from the mud during a drought on the northwest shore of the Sea of Galilee. Some call this the Jesus Boat. It's kept in Yigal Elan Museum in Kibbutz Ginnasar. Now, if you're ever in Israel, you should check out uh, this boat. It's very similar to what Jesus and his disciples would have used. Now, it's impossible to say whether Jesus ever was in this boat. Now, that we don't know. But it absolutely is possible that he was. So across the sea they went in a boat, leaving Jesus behind. The danger of following Jesus. The danger of following Jesus. Verse 18. The sea became rough because a strong wind was blowing. Now, life is not safe. Neither is following Jesus. If you're a faithful follower of Jesus, he may indeed lead you right into the danger, which is exciting. Cold air from the southeastern plains uh, would rush in over the Sea of Galilee and displace the warm, moist air over the lake, causing high winds and violent waves. In 1992, a storm hit the Sea of Galilee and sent 10-foot waves crashing into downtown Tiberias, causing significant damage to the town. Now, if you get caught in a storm like that, you better hold on. So the Sea of Galilee is not necessarily the safest place if a storm comes in. Matthew 14, 24 describes it this way. The boat by this time was a long way from land, beaten by the waves... For the wind was against them. These guys are getting pummeled by the waves on the Sea of Galilee. Mark mentioned that the disciples were making headway painfully, he says. You get the idea. Now, both Matthew and Mark tell us that they were sailing during the fourth watch of the night, which would have been between 3 a.m. and 6 a.m. in the morning. So it was dark and it was dangerous. Now, remember, Jesus told them to get into the boat and to cross, knowing that the storm would come. He sent them into the storm, but for a very important reason. As followers of Jesus, we can't avoid all danger, nor should we. There are good reasons to be dangerous for Jesus Christ. There is more to life than comfort. Trust Christ and do something radical and something meaningful. It's dangerous to share the gospel. It's dangerous to confront a friend. It's dangerous to commit to something when you're afraid of what you're committing to. It's dangerous to take spiritual leadership really seriously. Life is not safe, but life with Christ is exciting and awesome. Now, following Jesus can be dangerous, but God is always with us. We know that. That's proven true. He is always with us. The writer of Hebrews said, so we can confidently say, the Lord is my helper, I will not fear. 
what can man do to me? Now, how is it possible to live fearlessly? Well, the writer of Hebrews said in the verse before, verse 5, for he said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Our confidence in the dangerous adventure of following Jesus Christ is the presence of Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus wasn't with these guys in the boat, but he would be. And they were scared, really scared. The miracles of following Jesus. The miracles of following Jesus. Do you really believe in miracles? That's a fair question. Do you believe that miracles actually happen? And that Jesus performed real miracles? For many people, the miracles of Jesus are on par with unicorns and superheroes. It's fairy tale. And our culture would like you to believe that science is the absolute authority on everything and that if you believe God or creation that you're irrational and unintellectual. But let's be honest, science has limits. Should we reject history because we can't run it through science? No, There's another great method which Josh McDowell calls the legal historical method, which seeks to validate truth by proving it beyond all reasonable doubt through oral and written testimony along with archaeology or actual physical evidence. We use this method in court all the time. The courtroom needs more than science. Now, to be fair, we need to say that science is limited. It's imperfect. There are things that science cannot explain that are reasonable and logical to believe. Dr. William Lane Craig, he's a Christian philosopher and theologian, brilliant man, debated Dr. Peter Atkins, an atheist chemist, in 1998 at the Carter Presidential Center in Atlanta. In a discussion after the debate, Dr. Atkins said that science was omnipotent. That's the word that he used, omnipotent. And then asked Dr. Craig what science could not account for. Dr. Atkins apparently believed that science could explain everything there is. Dr. Craig responded like this. I think there are a good number of things that cannot be scientifically proven, but that are all rational to accept. And then he gives five things, or he gave five things, that illustrate the limitations of science. Number one, logical and mathematical proofs. Science presupposes logic and math, so to use science to prove them would be arguing in a circle. Number two, metaphysical truths. The past was not created five minutes ago with the appearance of age, but science can't disprove that. Number three, ethical beliefs about statements of value. Science cannot show that the Nazi scientists experimenting with Jews were any more or less evil than the scientists in Western democracies. Number four, aesthetic judgments. The beautiful, like the good, cannot be scientifically proven. Number five, science itself cannot be justified by the scientific method. Dr. Craig gave the example of the special theory of relativity. Now, some of you are like, I know that theory. All right, I don't, okay? So I am not a scientist, and what I say, I'm getting purely off of Dr. William Lane Craig in that little video. So if you're like, that's wrong. In the last 10 years, that's been scientific. I, I don't, um, thank you, but I don't know. This is what Dr. Craig said. 
The special theory of relativity where the whole theory rests on an assumption that cannot be proven by science. That the speed of light is constant in a one-way direction between any two points, A and B. This must be assumed, or you could say, taken by faith for the theory of special relativity to hold. What I want you to see is that science does not provide answers for everything that is true and reasonable to believe. Science is not God. Science is limited. Science has been wrong. Science is fallible and therefore cannot be trusted as the irrefutable authority on all things. I believe that people reject the miracles of Jesus not on the basis of superior knowledge or scholarship or better science, but on the basis of what would be true if the miracles really happened. They don't want to believe because of the implications of belief. So they reject or misinterpret anything that suggests the miracles of Jesus are true. People prefer unrestrained immorality to a God who will judge them. So they do whatever they can to discredit miracles and anyone who believes in them. Verse 19 says, this is astonishing truth. When they had rode about three or four miles, they saw Jesus walking on the sea and coming near the boat. And they were frightened. Absolutely they were frightened. What in the world? You're in the middle of a, of a sea and some form is walking towards you. I'm freaking out. I don't know about you. I'm pulling the rod in. I'm packing up. And I just want to go home and suck my thumb in the corner. I mean, this is scary business. In Matthew 14, 24, Matthew uses the plural word stadius or stadia, a unit of measurement that is just over 600 feet. And Matthew says they were many stadia away from the land. Many stadia, many units of 600 feet. They could have easily been three to four miles from shore. Now, the language of John 6, 19 can be a little, little bit tricky. John says Jesus was walking epi or on the sea. That's a miracle. That's a miracle. But epi can also mean by. So some scholars say Jesus was walking by the lake or along the seashore. Or seashore, yeah. I guess it was shoreline. No miracle. Now, how do we know exactly what happened in that moment? Well, you need to read the verse in its context. Never pluck verses out of their context. They're written in a whole uh, stream of verses. So I want you to see why the only logical thing to believe is that Jesus actually walked on water. So let me build that case for you. First, a caution. Some preachers and teachers and writers mix truth with subtle error and are therefore extremely dangerous to mislead people from the truth. Always test what you hear against the Bible. Read, study, ask questions, and make sure that what you believe aligns with what the Bible actually teaches. William Barclay, who is no longer living, is amongst the most renowned and influential Bible commentators and writers of the 20th century. 
He was a minister in the Church of Scotland and the professor of divinity and biblical criticism at the University of Glasgow in Scotland. A very, very intelligent man. His commentaries continue to be bestsellers. You'll find his commentaries and books on the shelves of many Christians, even pastors. I think they're found even on the shelf of our own uh, library downstairs. They are even on my shelf, but in extremely limited quantities. I got the books for free, and that's why you're going to find them there. Now, William Barclay was one of the most dangerous theologians that ever wrote. He wrote some helpful things, but he was also skeptical of the Trinity, was a universalist, believing all men would be saved, rejected the virgin birth, and argued away miracles. And his aim in writing his commentaries was, quote, to make the best biblical scholarship available to the average reader. His target market was was people without a theological training and education. Now, what did Barclay believe about John 6? Barclay wrote this. This is one of the most wonderful stories in the fourth gospel, and it is all the more wonderful when we press behind it to the original meaning of the Greek and the original incident, and when we find that it really describes not some extraordinary miracle, but a simple incident in which John found in a way that he never forgot what Jesus was like. And he wrote two paragraphs later, Jesus was walking by the seashore. His understanding of epi is correct. Okay, it can mean by. But I want you to see for yourself in the text why it can't mean by. It must mean on in John 6, making all the difference of how we see Jesus. Here are 11 logical reasons to believe Jesus actually walked on water and is therefore sovereign over the universe and every single law of the universe. These come from Matthew, Mark, and John. Number one, Matthew writes that Jesus came to the disciples who were in the boat many stadia from land. One stadium, 600 feet, two football fields, and they were many stadia from shore. The NIV says the disciples were in the middle of the lake. Number two, Matthew, Mark, and John say Jesus walked on the sea. Now, some might say in the sea or by the sea. But when you read the other details of the account, those translations of Epi are illogical. Plus, the Sea of Galilee is on average 84 feet deep. He's not walking in the water. He was walking on top of it. There was nothing for Jesus to walk on but water. Number three, How could Jesus have come near the boat, as John recounts, if he was walking on the land and they were far from the land? Number four, with high winds and violent waves, the disciples could not have heard Jesus say from the shore, it is I, do not be afraid. Have you ever been in a windy environment and you're trying to communicate with someone that's quite a distance? You're like, I'm not getting this. You know, at a baseball game or something, you can't hear people in the wind. That's what's going on. And this is the violent scene on that on that lake. Number five, why would the disciples think Jesus was a ghost and be terrified if he was simply walking on land? That wouldn't make sense. Number six, Peter got out of the boat and walked on the water to Jesus. All right, number seven, Jesus rescued Peter from sinking. That makes no sense if they were both standing on land. Number eight, how did Jesus get into the boat in the middle of the Sea of Galilee and arrive at Gennesaret in the boat with his disciples if he walked around the sea? 
Number nine, Mark tells us Jesus meant to pass by them. Keep in mind, they're in a boat in the middle of the sea. Ten, why would the disciples be astounded and worship Jesus saying, truly, you are the Son of God, if he simply walked on land like everybody else? And number 11, if Jesus didn't walk on the sea, why in the world would Matthew, Mark, and John include this story? There is no doubt, folks, that Jesus did a miracle here and walked on that water. There's no doubt. It's beyond all reasonable doubt. One more thing. Mark 6:51 says, and he got into the boat with them and the wind ceased and they were utterly astounded. Jesus stopped the wind. His power over the laws of physics and his power over weather patterns led the disciples to be astounded and to worship him as the son of God. Do you know what William Barclay wrote about that passage, about Mark 6? He wrote this, what happened we do not know and will never know. The story is cloaked in mystery which defies explanations. Folks, just study the details of the accounts honestly. And you'll know exactly what happened. Jesus walked on water. And he is truly the Son of God. Matthew 14 and Mark 6 and John 6 all suggest that Jesus walked on that lake. The point of the account is to see in splendid glory and power the Son of God, Jesus Christ. To marvel at what this man is able to do. To marvel at his accomplishments and to worship him as the Son of God. That's what John is calling you to do. See and believe and be astonished at what this man can accomplish. No man has ever done what Jesus has done. The fearlessness of following Jesus. The fearlessness. These men were in a boat on a raging sea. It was dangerous. And they saw a form walking toward them in the boat. They cried out in fear. It was a terrifying scene. I saw this YouTube video of a Brazilian hidden camera prank. And a secretary directed the victims into an elevator. They entered and as they appear to be ascending in the elevator, the lights start to blink. And so they're, they're getting concerned in the elevator. I think this is hilarious, by the way, but you might not find it funny. Then the lights totally shut off. And they're in the dark. And then they turn on these infrared cameras, and you can see. And out from a panel creeps this little girl dressed in white with makeup on, messed up hair, and she looks extremely creepy. And she's carrying this creepy little doll. And she just stands there in the middle of the elevator until the lights turn back on. Now, no one was in the elevator with these people. They look over and flat out lose it. They're terrified. They're screaming. Some of them are putting their hands in front of their face, and they're hitting buttons just trying to get out. One guy, the doors went open. He flew out running with his backpack, and the little girl is chasing him. It was hilarious. I mean, not for the people, but for those watching. You know, just terrifying. The disciples thought they saw a ghost. Don't miss that. This is freaking them out. 
This doesn't happen every day. And that's enough to freak anyone out. Imagine how you would respond when you see a ghost walking to you on the water. All right, this is not Jason's Woods. This is not Field of Screens where people unwisely pay to be terrified. This is real. And Jesus said to them, it is I, do not be afraid. Now there is something in verse 20 that the English doesn't tell you. Jesus said to them, ego a me, which can be translated, I am. I am. I am was God's self-identification back in Exodus 3.14. Now Jesus wasn't necessarily declaring his divinity at that moment to the disciples, but it is striking either way that that's what he says. Now, in their moment of fear, God in the flesh comes to them and says, it is I, do not be afraid. That's not an allegory for how Jesus helps us in the storms of life, though he does. This wind is real. These waves are real. It's real and dangerous and terrifying life. And Jesus said, it is I, do not be afraid, because he is God over the wind and the waves. He created the sea. He created the wind, the waves, even the wood of the boat that held them up, even the laws of physics that held them up. And the wind eventually stopped because Jesus is control, uh, has control over the entire universe. Jesus rescued them in that moment. If Jesus has sovereign control over the universe, how much more does he have sovereign control over every moment of your life? even the most terrifying moments when we all are just like, I don't even know what to do. This is beyond me. Jesus shows up. Do not be afraid. It is I. I am with you. The disciples could see imminent danger and threat. What they couldn't see was the sovereign plan of God determined before the seas were made. They would not capsize in that moment. It was violent, it was dangerous, but they were destined to see the power and glory and grace of Jesus Christ in that moment. We don't see everything that that God is doing in our lives. We don't have the full picture. Where we see danger, God sees sovereign safety. And that day Jesus calmed the waves and pulled off a rescue that the United States Coast Guard would be very, very proud of. But he also gave them safety and hope for the other side. Folks, you can be fearless in this life. You can be fearless. Taking on anything that anyone can throw your way when you trust in the sovereignty of Jesus. Hebrews 1.3 says that the Son of God upholds the universe by the word of His power. Hebrews 1.10 says Jesus laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning and the heavens are the work of His hands. When Genesis 1-1 says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth, know that the Son of God was involved. It was the Son of God, the Father, the Spirit, who said in Genesis 1-9, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together into one place and let the dry land appear. And what they said happened. And verse 10 says, God called the dry land earth and the waters that were gathered together he called seas and God saw that it was good. The Son of God Jesus Christ made water with his word. And he says, it is I, do not be afraid. Do not be afraid. Psalm 89, verses 8 and 9, make John 6 work. O Lord God of hosts, 
Who is mighty as you are? O Lord, with your faithfulness all around you, you rule the raging of the sea. When its waves rise, you still them. Sometime check out Psalm 107, maybe this week. I think you'll be pleased to find Jesus right there in that psalm. Friends, the power of Jesus is unrivaled. There is no one like him. It leads us to worship him as God, but also to live fearlessly in the safety of his sovereign plan for us. Trust God with your life and find joy, the joy of following Jesus. Verse 21 in the ESV says, Then they were glad to take him into the boat. I bet they were. And immediately the boat was at the land to which they were going. They were astounded. They worshipped. They were happy to have Jesus come on into the boat. There's plenty of room for you. Following Jesus is no doubt an adventure. Know your physical safety is not guaranteed. But your greatest joy is. In fact, your joy will be indestructible in the face of danger and pain and death. And nothing else can give you that. This is why Jesus is precious. Because he walks with you and equips you as you walk through the pain and danger. Can we all just face it? No one, atheist, agnostic, Hindu, Buddhist, Christian, can avoid danger in life. You can't somehow exempt out of danger. That something may actually happen to you and wreck you. And so in the middle of that absolute promise that bad things will happen to you, I wonder how people do it when they have no hope. How do you face that truth without saying, I need a rock to get me through this? And the rock that I'm going to choose and the rock that I say that you should choose is the rock of Jesus Christ who made the rocks. He is one to trust. He is one that actually can deliver for you and give you what you need most. Don't you just love him for that? It's like, I'll follow you because I know bad stuff is coming and I just want to be able to, to make it through. And he says, I'm with you. Don't be afraid. I'll get you through this. It's going to hurt. It's going to whack you upside the head. But your eternal security is mine. And I give it to you. That, he is so admirable. I just love Jesus for who he is. And he still exists, folks. He still gives you these promises. It's not over. Verse 21 is probably another miracle. It says, immediately the boat was at the land. Snap, and they're across on the other shore. Miracle. Amazing. I would have loved to have been in the boat. Now, where William Barclay and other liberal scholars explain away the miracles of Jesus and undermine the Bible... Others look more logically and see even more miracles. Listen to what William Hendrickson wrote about John 6. Quote, The miracle on the sea is really four miracles in one. A, Jesus walks upon the sea without suspending the laws of gravity. He controls them in the interest of the kingdom. B, he causes Peter to walk upon the sea, but this story is not found in the fourth gospel. See, he reveals himself as master of the storm, for when he enters the boat, the storm ceases. And he writes, not in John, meaning that account was not in John, but in, uh, in the Bible. And D, he conquers even space 
for when he enters the boat, it is on the shore all at once. This is our awesome Jesus. This is our awesome Jesus. He does astonishing things like that, and he still does them, and he does them in your life. Now, you might not see a physical miracle, but it's a miracle to change the heart, to change our will, to actually change our desires where we want what he wants and not what our flesh wants. That's hard. That's impossible. I have been wrestling with my flesh. I have been sinning against God. Are you? I am, and and where is the hope going to be that somehow we'll just be able to say, no, I'm next time I'm just not going to do it. That doesn't work. But when the grace of God shows up, and he grabs you by his grace, and he provides the exact strength that you need to endure at that moment, and we look back and say, I didn't, folks, I didn't do that. God showed up. Now, Spider-Man is awesome. I happen to love, now Batman's my favorite, but I love Spider-Man. I mean, this is sweet. This guy is awesome. All right, not going to lie about this. This weekend, The Amazing Spider-Man 2, which I want to see, opened in the box office and has already grossed $35.5 million. But wouldn't you agree that the stunning reality of Jesus Christ is more amazing than a fictional superhero? Doesn't the reality of Jesus inspire more wonder and amazement in you than special effects do? We haven't become so dull as to be more impressed with fiction than we are with God, have we? Jesus is real. He is astonishing. Something to marvel at. May the grace of God unleash in your heart true awe and wonder and astonishment at the Son. And then... May God's grace lead you to unreserved faith and confidence in his life, death, burial, and resurrection. Jesus exceeds marvelous. Let's pray. God, we want to be awestruck at what is real, not what we see on some dumb screen that was created by a couple brains by a computer in some cubicle. God, help us to be astonished at real life and the power of Jesus Christ. You are an awesome Father, a God who created the universe and the Son was involved and the Spirit was involved. This is amazing. When we look at trees, they are living And they were made by words. When we look at each other, we see a dim image of God because by words you made us in your image. Humanity is an astonishing miracle. This doesn't happen by some ooze getting together over billions of years and producing complex life. We have your truth, God, and it says you created it, and it says you are amazing, and it says you are astonishing, and you are omnipotent. God, I pray that you work in Jerusalem church, astonishment and wonder and amazement 
at the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that we would be so consumed with your truth and amazed by it that we actually teach it to our kids and show them why they should be astonished at it and that we actually share it with neighbors and friends. It's pretty impressive what Jesus has done and I pray that we delight in it and that it brings us our deepest joy and pleasure. In Christ's name we pray, amen.